0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mescouta, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Amen. So we are on the second to last week of this sermon series that we've entitled Words of Life. Second to last week. Today, next week, we will wrap up. Pastor Michael will be back to lead us out. And so our aim through this sermon series has been to know, to relearn, to grow in our fluency of these words of life that God has given us through Christ as our new identity in Christ is being uh, unpacked. How do we speak these words of life? Okay, we've looked at how to speak to the world. We've looked at how to speak to ourselves. We've looked at how to speak to God in prayer. We've learned to speak with humility humility. We've learned to speak as peacemakers and last week Adam did a great job talking about how we speak as ambassadors for Christ so today my hope is to shed a light learning to speak the words of life that God has given us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as worshipers as worshipers so my hope is to shed a light on this so as we begin I thought it'd probably be the, you know, you typically start a sermon by giving a definition, right? That usually grabs the attention of most people, right? No, that's right. But that's what I'm going to do. So what is worship? What is worship? I think oftentimes when we hear Christian words and they're overused, when a word is overused, it often loses its meaning, right? So worship, I think what it isn't, worship we often think of as all of the activities, all of the things that we do, we sing and we pray and we read scripture and we fellowship and we share our faith and we serve the broken and, and the powerless and, the, and we do these things and, and all these things are forms of worship. But worship in and of itself, the word of worship, it means to ascribe worth, simply put. The word that we get as worship comes from a word that means to give value, to ascribe worth. And we are very, very careful here at Mercy's Door. Adam just did the announcements. We're very careful in our language about these words because they matter. Okay, we talk, we share. When we gather, we are gathering corporately for worship Jeff did a great job this morning. He leads us in songs as we sing praises. This is surely a form of worship. Likely, when you think of worship, you think of singing, right? But we often, we talk about when we scatter as a church throughout the week, can we meet in our gospel communities? We, get, we scatter for worship. And even when we, we talk about giving, giving of your tithes, Giving of your time. We talk about it in terms of a form of worship. That's why we don't pass a plate. We don't want the act of seeing a plate to be something that jogs your memory and out of guilt or compulsion, you reach in the wallet. No, because we see everything, all these forms of worship to be unto a holy God. Worship is ascribing worth to God. That's what it's about. Worship is about God. It's our response to Him. I like this analogy. A pastor, John Piper, he often says that whenever you take a drink of cool, refreshing water after a long hike in a hot, mountainous region, you take a drink, what do you do? Ah! Right? That response is worship. That response is worship. Worship, it's giving thanks, ascribing value to the situation. I love that picture. So, as we know what worship is, I have a, I don't know, I thought I'd be uh, relevant. I have a controversial statement, okay? So, Seth, maybe in post, you can do like flashing lights for the live stream, folks. Controversial statement alert coming right here. You and I you are great at worship and I think the world by and large is phenomenal at worship I'm gonna unpack that here in just a second so I have a quick story I want to share with you late October 2011 My wife and I, we we were living in our home. We were living in Arkansas at the time, in our first home. And as a point, because uh, I'm really a, uh, you know, a pace setter in this terms, I thought it would be good for us to only have Wi-Fi, to not have cable television because I was ahead of the times and I wanted to cut the cord, 2011. Now, this is really before any real streaming services were, you know, Popping off at this time. And so I, this night, however, in late October, I was scrambling because my frugality and my tight-wattedness had left me in a poor position. I was texting friends and family, and I was trying to mooch as many uh, online passwords and login information as I could because there was something that I desperately desired to Watch. You see, Thursday, October 27th, 2011, was game six of the World Series where our St. Louis Cardinals here were playing the Texas Rangers. Now, I understand we have a military community. Some of you not, might not be Cardinals fans, and I will pray for you. Okay? I will pray for you that, that cha- your heart changes uh, to that. So I'm sitting here. And the only luxury I have of watching and paying attention to this game, and you have to understand, and my dad can attest to this, growing up, we always had the Cardinals. It seemed like the Cardinals played 365 days of the year. If we're eating dinner, the Cardinals game is on in the background. If we go out to the garage, it's on the radio. Something is always being played of Cardinals. I grew up watching the Cardinals, and I love it. I love the Cardinals. I love watching the Cardinals. So you would understand my dismay in this moment When I'm sitting here in my new home and all I have is Wi-Fi and there's no way to stream the game. I'm going on Fox, I'm going on ESPN. The only option I have is on the ESPN app of my phone and I'm sitting here like a banshee refreshing this thing to see pitch by pitch and so I'm reading what is happening. I'm reading what is happening as it's going. Refresh, refresh, oh my goodness. Two outs, two outs, bottom of the ninth, Cardinals are losing by two, and it's down to the last strike. One more strike, this game is over, the Cardinal series is over, they have lost the World Series. My heart is pumping, and it's pumping looking at this screen. So in my desperation, I called one of my buddies, and this was really before FaceTime had taken off. I called him, he put me on speakerphone, I said, man, I've got to see, I've got to hear, I've got to do something with this game. Okay, I call him, he puts me on speakerphone, and this is what I hear. Into right, well hit. Back at the wall, it's off the wall. One run scores. Here comes Berkman. Freeze has tied it. 7-7. Unbelievable. hits it in the air to center. We will see you tomorrow night. Play it again, Let's <clears throat> not, Mr. <laughs> I would love it. But we are great at worship. In this moment, Bush Stadium, 45,538 people on a cool 50-degree night in late October, no one was quiet. It's not a problem of if we know how to worship. Our problem is with who we worship, who or what we worship. That's what I want to look at today. Thinking, why? Why is it so easy to get excited, to jump up around, to raise your hands, to clap, to celebrate, to to act like a fool when you see something so incredible? Why is it so easy? It's because you were made to do it. You were made to respond to incredible things. And our problem as a church and as a world, in a fallen world, is that we respond to so many lesser things than the ultimate thing, which is our God. So I have three who's. The three whos of our worship. First, we're going to look at the object of our worship, ultimately, which is our Lord. And the next two are implications of that. So let's look first at who? God. So in the book of Colossians, as I read for us, Paul, i give you a little context here. Paul is writing in, um, under house arrest in Rome, and he's heard now that this church in, of uh, the Colossians, he, they are growing. The gospel is spreading in this area. People are coming to faith in Jesus. Churches are being built. The church is growing. But in this case, he's writing this letter because the church of the Colossus, they are uh, believing lies. There's some heresy in this church of... Um, I lost my spot. They're believing the heresy that there's some other way to salvation other than Jesus. And so he's writing this letter to combat those lies and to clear the air. So, I want to first read chapters 1 and 2. What Paul does in chapters 1 and 2 is he lays out an incredible doctrine uh, treatise on uh, the preeminence of Christ. How, how God and Christ and the Spirit are working together in union, separate, but together together. And he unpacks this beautifully in the first two chapters, okay? So, I want to lay this out quickly for us. The object of our faith, the object of our worship is God. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, he begins by saying, For by him, Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Love the clarity. Our problem is not with how to worship, but who and what we worship. I think because of this fallen our fallen nature and sin in the world, we are so quick with very little difficulty to ascribe worth to things, to people, it's even ideas. It's, it's so second nature for us to worship. There's a pastor, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, when we misplace the object, think of, think of the beginning. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden and what they exchanged. They thought, life eating this fruit, this is more valuable than what we already have in the presence of God. The first time the human race ascribed worth to something other than the Lord. We know the repercussions of this, but think of that. We do the same thing. We do the same thing. Pastor and author out of Louisville, his name's Mike Cosper. He says, worship isn't something other external compartmentalized or confined it is life with god lived unto god for his glory and our pleasure he goes on to say i think i have this here the story of worship makes it clear god is at the center of all of our worship he is the single most glorious thing in the whole universe the one whom we ascribe the greatest and highest worth By this, of course, I mean God the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are three but one, sharing and exchanging glory in a dance beyond our imagination. I love that. And out of that loving community, God created the world, authoring all of creation's responsive declarations of His glory. When sin corrupted the world, He promised to come and redeem it we are very very good at worship our problem is it's a misdirected view we aren't worshiping the right thing often so my question for you i want to leave you with some reflective questions and i'll post this online and on the email so if you're a note taker don't freak out but i'd love for you to talk about this with your gospel community or talk about this with your your friends or your spouse or your family but how would your worship change if you saw rightly the object the pure the right object of your worship how would it change let's keep going the second who the first two is the object of our worship the second who is the church now a direct implication of the people He's writing, Paul is writing the book to a people, the group of at the, at the Colossians, right? So he's writing this in the context of church, people gathered together. So the first two chapters of Colossians are focused on correcting doctrine that has been misled or they have been tweaked in a way that is not right. And so he spends the first two chapters of the book of Colossians Sorting it all out. Then, beginning in chapter 3, he goes more into a practical living for Christians. The more practical living for Christians. And I just want to take a sidebar here for you guys to understand. All throughout Scripture, this is an example of something that happens all throughout Scripture. Paul takes two chapters. and You could probably go home and read it over over lunch. But he takes two chapters to go in-depth with some rich doctrinal teaching about Christ, about the Lord, and what they have done to rescue and redeem humankind. Then, he talks about our response, what we should do. I think there's also a problem in our world, in our church, and in, in me. We often run to the things that we should do instead of understanding who we are. Who we are out of an overflow of who we are as chosen ones, beloved now we do. We don't do so that we are chosen. You think about being rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery, the Israelites. God rescues them out of slavery, all of these plagues and the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. And what happens then? He doesn't say, follow these commandments, Sinai. Follow these commandments, then I'll rescue you. No, he's rescued them, leads them into the desert, and then he gives, tells them what they ought to do. Our God is the initiator. It is not our strength or our power that beckons His grace. It is by Him and Him alone that we can live and love. So, that was my sidebar. The church at Colossians is being skewed, and this is what he says to combat the lies of this heresy. First, I don't have this up here, but uh, Colossians 3 Verse 1, it says this quick little statement. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ. First thing he says, If then you have been raised with Christ. Now, if it's good enough for Paul and an inspired scripture to make note, if then you have been raised with Christ, if it's important for the church, the Colossians, it's important for the church of Mercy's Door. He's not assuming that everyone has been raised with Christ. I want to take a moment. Are you raised with Christ? Have you been raised with Christ? Because this is contingent on that. We have a great team of pastors here at Mercy's Door, we have a great team of gospel community leaders who would be happy to talk to you about something like that. Let's continue. Verses 12 through 15, it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complained against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. I love this passage, one of, my fa- one of the first passages I ever read to memorize, but I love the, the first part in verse 12, it says, put on then, put on then. So this is kind of assuming something. It it assumes that you had something wrong on to begin with. The beginning of chapter 3, he says, put off then. Now he's saying, put on something, right? We just had graduation season, and what do all the graduates do when it's like, I'm here to say congratulations to the class of 2011, you are graduated. What do they do? They take off their cap and gown. Why? It doesn't make sense for them to have it on anymore. They're not in high school. Right? What happens when you get married, when the officiant of a marriage says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss your bride. What happens then? It doesn't make sense for her to have that name anymore. You put off that old name, you put on your new name. Put on them. Of Christ followers, you've been raised with Christ. You put on these things. He says, "Put on as God's chosen ones." I love that. As God, what a throwaway statement, you know. It, it, there, I had a I had a professor one time, and he, he made us re, um, read his dissertation. Okay, and this dissertation was seminary professor. He, he the dissertation was on. As God's Chosen Ones. 300-page dissertation all about how we, the people of God, are his chosen ones. So we could spend an entire sermon series on what that looks like, all right? But what a throwaway statement. As God's Chosen Ones. Four words. God chose you. Can I get an amen or whoa? Hello? God chose you. In my thank you. in my, uh, in my study, through my, my Bible reading plan that I'm going through right now, we, we just, I just finished up in Job, and something as I was reading this and preparing that connected with me is the account of Job whenever finally God speaks. he's kind of listening to the complaints and listening to Job's friends, and Job talks, and then finally, at the end of Job, God talks. And there's a question in here that I don't know why it just stuck with me throughout the week as I'm As I was preparing for this, it says, God asked Job, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? (laughs) I thought that was so, I don't know why that struck me. Maybe I'm still sad about the St. Louis Rams leaving uh, town. But I did a little research. There's forty to 100,000 mountain goats in North America. Useless information for you to have at your disposal. The same God that knows when the mountain goats give birth. The same God that has spoken into existence the universe. Often, uh, astronomers say that when we look up At the sky, what we're seeing is not even individual planets, but oftentimes we can see what we're seeing is galaxies, other solar systems, the mountains, the air, the tree, every blade of grass, every hair on your head, every molecule of your DNA, everything he has to do, and he's chosen you. This past week was a pretty stressful week for us. We, our air conditioner went out. We had to bite the bullet, get a new air conditioner. I was trying to be a hero in a slow-pitch softball league, and I popped my rib out, and so it was pretty stressful. I didn't get a lot of sleep. In my life, these two things, the heat and my physical comfort, and my life has fallen apart. I could barely, I don't even remember how many kids I had by the end of the week. You know? let alone that I had chosen them and taken care of them, but our God chose you. That's not a throwaway statement. I just want to be clear on that. It's not a throwaway. So take off what makes, what, take off what doesn't make sense and put on what does make sense. And again, remember, remember this order of operations. God does and we respond. Okay? let's move on verse 16 verse 16 all this put on as god's chosen ones goes to 16 let the word of christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks with thankfulness in your hearts to god i think if i were to have this sermon in just one passage that would be it this is the crux of what I want to talk about today. As the object of our faith, the who of our faith is made clear. How do we respond as the church? How do we respond appropriately? Now remember why Paul is writing. He's writing to combat these false teachings that the church has been infiltrated with. And this is his solution. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God through Christ. I love it. I love the clarity here. But I also think that in 15 and 16, I'm sorry, got to jumping ahead. One pastor says that as the word dwells richly and you are filled with the spirit, the natural outgrowth of the people of God is singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. I love that picture. What blooms out of you when you have rightly seen these things of God, is now worship. Again, you are great at worship. It's natural. Because you were made to do it. You were made to worship. I think there's also a very important note in verses 15 and 16. The number of times that one another has been mentioned. Take a look at that. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Uh, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, and above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another... In all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. It's very important for us as the body of Christ seeing rightly in view the object of our worship to one another, one another. To one another, one another. I did a quick search through the New Testament. Listen to this. We are to submit to one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, restore one another accept one another, care for one another, bear with one another, and carry one another's burdens. Cosper, again, the pastor in Louisville, he says this about these passages. These passages, taken together, show us a church that gathers in the midst of the world's pressures under the hopeful warning of Christ's return encouraging one another and building each other up through the presence of God's Spirit by immersing itself in God's Word, singing and proclaiming the Gospel. The fruit of the gathering is not just a strong individual, but a strong church, united in faith. In this sense, the gathering is unique, not as an encounter with God. It is that. Though God's presence is a, const- is a constantly available comfort and help to the Christian, rather, it's unique because it is an encounter with the people of God filled with the Spirit of God spurring one another along in the mission of God. Christ in me meets Christ in you. It's so important That when you see rightly, you do it in the context of togetherness in church. It matters if you come gather with us. Your presence and participation isn't only for your individual relationship with God. It's also for your brothers and sisters. This is a radical thought, I understand, in the consumeristic view that we have here in america it's it's so much like when my phone my phone is only useful if it's charged right and what do we do we we put it on the charger we we lock it up and then when it gets to an adequate amount of time of charge we unplug it we go about our day and so often i see uh, in churches and even in our church i think even i confess me will come on a sunday plug in For what I think can get me through the week and how selfish how individualistic is that view of church not considering everyone else's need for me to worship now there's a story I heard uh, in the early 70s this missionary uh, this missionary woman she moved to a remote village in Alaska okay and a part of as she was learning to uh, live this new life in this remote village in Alaska, she found and understood that there was a a well that was dug, drilled down, and, and dug uh, in you know in a part of a part of the village where all of the villagers would go. She learned that uh, early. She learned early on that on Sundays of all days was the day that these villagers wouldn't often go get water. So she decides that Sunday is going to be her day to go get water uh, so she can have her water for the week. Little did she know that as she goes to, this is an old time well where you got to crank down, break through the ice, so she's cranking this thing, priming the pump to get this water flowing. She's taking 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes go by, and she is laboring. She's doing a, a full lat workout by this time. Thankfully, it's Alaska, so she's cool, I guess. She's doing this work. Finally, water starts to pour out. She fills her containers. She picks them up. She carries them. Next week, the Sunday comes by, same thing, Ugh. grinding, grinding for this, for this water. The next week comes by, same thing, same thing. So at the end of it, she's loathing Sundays because she has to get to this, to get to this well to fill up her water for the week when she noticed the, some of the villager, villagers starting to, to take notice of her, and even some of the children were giggling. This, this, uh, this woman just <coughs> getting after this well. So thankfully, uh, one of the villagers who had enough courage came up to her and said, excuse me, gave her some advice. They said, he said, you know, if you came to the well every day, it wouldn't be so hard. And it would actually help the next people who wanted to use the well. Well, What a great picture of when we come to the Lord and if, if Sunday is the only time you can get filled up, let's talk. Let's talk. He is available to us the veil has been torn, and now, as if you've been raised with Christ, He is indwelling you in His Spirit. And not only this, but this well that has been primed will help the next person as they go gather water. You know, my experience, I, have, I, I love what I get to do because I get to lead people into worship. The form is leading in song in liturgy and I love it but my worship is greatly affected and greatly encouraged by you guys there's some songs that I love to play and I like music and it's fun but my some of my favorite times in worship is when I step back from the microphone and I open my eyes and I see what you are doing it's a beautiful beautiful picture and I'd imagine that might be the case for some of you happened to me today I'm I'm sitting here. I pause, and I hear, "Though our sins are many, His mercy is more." Amen. That's good. We gather. First of all, it matters if you're here. I know there's a lot of people on vacation, so hear my rebuke. No, I'm just joking. It matters if you're here. It matters if you're a GC. It matters not just for you and your relationship to God, but it matters to those people around you. It matters. When we gather, it's not just a family reunion. We gather because we have work to do. Our work is to remember the gospel. It's oftentimes easier for me to remember the gospel when you are remembering the gospel. It matters. Thirdly, When we see rightly the object of our worship and it infiltrates our church where the the gathering people of Christ are meeting together in worship, the third who, the third implication of that is a watching world takes notice. Verse 17 of Colossians, this last verse, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, through him, In a great summary of what he's covering here, Paul, the body of Christ, we should say all of our words, we should do all of our deeds in harmony with the knowledge and understanding that Christ has been revealed to us. It just makes sense. You are a chosen one of God. Do what makes sense in all that you do. And by this... The world will know. The world watches us and knows. This all assumes that something seen throughout the early church, all throughout the early church, and even church today, the lost and broken world look on the church who are celebrating in the midst of lost and brokenness. How can you celebrate when you. This pandemic and jobs are lost and people's lives are lost and, and you're still giving? People people are giving their stimulus checks away to see other people lifted up how is this what's going on there what's going on at mercy's door what's going on at purpose church what's going on at first baptist what's happening well they're seeing the object of their worship correctly and in unity they're coming together and meeting needs and serving as the hands and feet of jesus that's what happens, that's what's happening the gathered church <clears throat> excuse me, the gathered church is a beacon to the world that causes outsiders to look in. When we gather together, we proclaim to the world that Jesus is king and He's the only hope. Tim Keller, he says this I love this too. God wants the world to overhear us worshiping Him. God directs His people not simply to worship. But to sing his praises before the nations. We are not to simply communicate the gospel, but celebrate the gospel before them. That video I showed uh, on speakerphone. I heard all this happening on speakerphone. And yes, I remained on speakerphone from innings 9, 10, and 11, hearing all this and hearing the background noises of my friend. I celebrated. I probably woke my wife up. I woke the neighbors up for sure because I went outside and I was probably ripped my shirt off and probably did something ridiculous. Okay, But when the world sees us celebrating and they don't understand why, I think there's some power in that. Even Jesus, He says in John 13, by this all people will know you're my disciples. How? If you love one another. If you have love for one another, our worship not only matters to the building up of the church, but it also matters to the watching world. I'm wrapping up. Stick with me. Here's my conclusion. What I've been praying for this week is that we as a church, you specifically, but we as a church, that we'd be reinvigorated with passion for worship and all the activities that we associate with it. We'd be reinvigorated, we'd be renewed with a sense of who we are worshiping and what he has done. If you see rightly our God, oh man, that we would rightly see and be overcome by our Father in heaven, we would also bleed out into the church and the world around us. And, And hear me, church. Ultimately, our our future hope of worship does not rely on us getting it right. Our future hope is founded and rooted in that Jesus has finished it. It is done. Your faith, although not your sight, we live by faith, not by sight, will one day be when we see him face to face. So I want to close with another quote. I really love this book. The book's called Rhythms of Grace by Mike Cosper. I couldn't recommend it more. I reread it for, in preparation for this, and I was just blown away. So I want to I end with this quote. Worship isn't merely a yes to the God who saves, but also a resounding and furious no to the lies that echo in the mountains around us. The church gathers like exiles and pilgrims collected out of a world that is isn't our home and looks hopefully toward a future. Our songs and prayers are a foretaste of that future. And even as we practice them, they shape us for our future home. Worship, we are great at it. The problem is is we often, it's, it's centered, it's focused, we're misled on the who, and we look at the what. But that worship, when seen rightly, the object of our worship, God, Christ, it, it changes churches. It changes hearts, it changes communities, it changes lives. So I hope that this, these words of life will be reinvigorating to you, challenging to you. Maybe challenge your thoughts, challenge your, your mindset. But ultimately, I just want God to get a lot of glory. So let me, let me pray as we close. Pray with me, church.